Ciao amici. Welcome to Cinema Italiano, the podcast dedicated to the Italian experience as told by film. Today, we'll be talking about four early films by Pietro Marcello, Crossing the Line, The Mouth of the Wolf, The Silence of Pelachan, and Lost and Beautiful. But first, a couple of quick news items. Just a couple weeks ago, at the Festa del Cinema di Roma, um, two new restorations were premiered. Padre Padrone by the Taviani brothers, their Palme d'Or winning film. I actually wrote an essay on Padre Padrone a few months back, so I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes. The other new restoration is for Pietro Germi's In the Name of the Law. This was one of his earliest films, more neorealist leaning than the Commedia all'Italiana that he would become known for later in his career. Hopefully these new restorations will find their way to a home video release so we can all enjoy them. Also new, just premiering yesterday on Netflix, is Eduardo Ponti's The Life Ahead, starring his own mother, Sophia Loren. This movie's already getting a lot of Oscar buzz for Sophia Loren, so I'm sure this will be an exciting one to check out. As a little bit of context, Pietro Marcello's newest film, Martin Eden, is now available through, through local art house theaters. To help celebrate the release of this film, Film at Lincoln Center in New York City offered a retrospective on Pietro Marcello, featuring four of his earliest feature films. Wanted to take some time to speak through each of them and then kind of discuss what are some of the commonalities bringing them together and then how does his style evolve throughout these films to take us up to Martin Eden. So going in chronological order, starting first with 2007's Crossing the Line, or Il Passaggio della Linea. This documentary follows trains and its passengers as they travel from the south of Italy up to the north and back again. We follow passengers as they go up and down through all of Italy, as far south as Sicily and as far north as Milan. It's as though the film were shot from the perspective of being on a train yourself. It starts out dark, it's late at night or early in the morning. All you can really see outside is the dark night sky, the haze of lights from far away, and you can hear the, the jittering of the train as it travels across. The people you see are often shadowy, entering, exiting, or standing still in place, occasionally encountering someone from whom we hear their story. The film ends with the train slowly entering a station at the end of the line, as it's unloaded off the track and the bay doors it's being loaded into close. Like I mentioned, most of the film is at night. It has a sense of restlessness and weariness as we follow mostly laborers as they go through their daily routine of traveling to find work. However, it seems to transition to daylight on our way northbound at Foggia, which is a town northeast of Naples. And as we transition to the north, from those who we're speaking to, there seems to be less conversation of work and having to travel. From the landscapes we're seeing, clear skies, snowy mountains, as we work our way north, perhaps we can take this as travel for pleasure and for leisure, and not from necessity, like it was through the restless nighttime sensation. Throughout this film, there's a, there's a sense permeating of a constant, of a routine, as well as always being in motion. There's almost a dichotomy created 
of this feeling of restlessness and movement, but one that is familiar and an institution from the people we interact with. The film also reflects that divide between North and South through the way, through what they're talking about, what they're traveling for, through the concept of travel and transportation itself. The North and South are literally connected by these train tracks, but the two worlds couldn't be more different. The sense of place and geography is even more established through Marcello's next film, The Mouth of the Wolf, or La Boca del Lupo, from 2009, just two years later. It's set in Genoa along the Italian Riviera, and it follows a couple, Enzo and Mary, who are two ex-convicts who met and fell in love while in prison. While the film focuses on these two, it actually begins and ends with cave dwellers, who are people that live in the Quattro dei Mille neighborhood of Genoa, who literally live in caves in this port town. From the narration, we're told that these are castaways from society with no other real place to go. But in these caves, they seem to have found a home and built out a sense of routine. The film begins without a clear narration or sense of direction, but as it unfolds, we see that we're following one solitary man, Enzo, as he's released from prison. He had just gotten off the train or bus, is back home in Genoa, and is on his way to go home to see his wife, Mary. His backstory and life of crime is told to us, set against archival footage images, and eventually we land on an old photo of Enzo himself. He and Mary's relationship is also brought to life through sound. We hear cassette tapes that they had made for one another, um, while Enzo was in prison, available to us as a first-person account of, of their relationship and how their love grew. We learn that Enzo is from Catania, in the south of Italy, went to school in Sicily, and then moved up to Genoa. Now that he's back in Genoa and out of prison, he admits to someone at a bar that he's, too, he's become too old to find work, but he's too young to retire. Almost similar to the cave-dweller castaways, Enzo himself is someone who is constantly out of place, whether geographically, someone from Catania who now finds himself in Genoa in the north, culturally, or even just getting himself into trouble. He's out of, he's out of place just with the law. When Genoa as a town, as well as Enzo as an individual, are described by the narrator, the images were shown are largely archival, but are also interspliced with contemporary footage. This blend of the old with the new creates a sort of timelessness of spaces that we're, that where we are is somewhere that is eons old, where people have lived for generations, and those we're seeing now are reliving or living some version of the life that those before had lived. What's also interesting is that for both Mary and Enzo, prison is where their lives changed, where they met one another. They didn't meet in Genoa. They didn't meet the love of their lives there. And that fact sort of adds to the, the sense of feeling stuck that being in one place can create. Two years later came The Silence of Pelachan, or Il Silencio di Pelachan, from 2011. This film is a tribute to Armenian filmmaker Artivist Pelachan, but it integrates footage from Pelachan's films with new footage shot by Marcello in current-day Moscow. Early on, the narrator speaks to what Pelachan calls 
distance montage that as a filmmaker, rather than connecting two images, focusing on separating them. We see this illustrated right away. There's a sort of, there's a journey compiled of footage between the two filmmakers that connects subconsciously, even if not rationally. The film opens with views from the sky, first looking at the moon, then to a skydiver, gradually moving physically down, as we see an image of a plane falling, and then even further down into the subterranean level, as we see passengers moving down an escalator into a subway station. We're presented with disparate images, but there's a natural progression that brings them together. The film shows us some of Pelichon's early work, as well as interspersed with footage of Pelichon today, shot by Marcello. We're given quotes and sound bites from Pelichon, but spoken by the narrator, not by Pelichon himself. We actually never even hear his voice throughout the film. The narrator says that Pelichon says that words cannot capture or communicate what images or films can. The narrator confesses that he felt powerless in that silence and that he felt both Pelichon's presence as well as his absence through this collaboration and partnership. Four years later came Pietro Marcello's fiction feature film debut with Lost and Beautiful, Bella e Perduta, from 2015. Set in Campania, Lost and Beautiful is the journey of a water buffalo across three different owners, a shepherd, a guardian, and a poet. This seemingly simple story almost feels mythic in its scale and what its characters represent. We have four main figures, Sarchiapone, who is a water buffalo, and we come to learn is also an existentialist thinker. We have Tommaso, the shepherd, who is portrayed almost like a saint, a perfect picture of a good man. We get Pulcinella, who is like a guardian angel, almost a supernatural figure helping lead the buffalo. And then Jesuino, who is a poet and ultimately the last owner of the buffalo. When the film starts, it's admittedly very confusing. We see a room full of men dressed in white wearing black masks. They're different manifestations of Pulcinella, an Italian cultural figure who you might recognize. Typically, almost portrayed like a clown, he's always dressed in white, has a white hat, wears a black mask with a long pointy nose. These different versions of Pulcinella are not speaking coherent language, but grunting and making noise. We gather that one appears to be selected, is granted the power of speech, and now can speak in a way that we can understand him. The film cuts to Sarchiapone as a young calf who is brought out from his pen and is taken to the Palazzo di Cartidello, an abandoned property that Tommaso, the shepherd, watches over voluntarily, using his own work and his own materials to care for the property. Tommaso is a good owner and takes good care of Sarchiapone, but he eventually dies. When he does, Pulcinella comes to Cartidello and takes Sarchiapone, the buffalo, away. In the film, the Pulcinella figure is depicted like a mediator between the dead and the living. He knows implicitly that Tommaso intended for him to take the buffalo away, but no such conversation or exchange is made between the two men. On their journey together, they pass by a grave, and Pulcinella bends over, appears to be able to hear the dead speaking, 
and he communicates on their behalf. The pair then comes to Jesuino, who is a shepherd and poet who, coincidentally, also lives in a cave. Around where he lives, he shows Pulcinella the tree of death and an enchanted fountain that transforms you into another person. Once the buffalo is safely within Jesuino's care, Pulcinella returns to the tree of death to free himself from his role. We suddenly see two versions of him, one as we know him, in the white with the hat and the mask, and one without the mask and the hat. Perhaps we're to take this as him becoming mortal. He's shed the responsibility of supernatural guardian that he was in his past life. Jesuino then takes the buffalo to another farmer to fatten him up so they can eat him. Pulcinella, now as a mortal, as a human, tries to retrieve the buffalo, who now doesn't seem to want to leave. Without Pulcinella's supernatural abilities, perhaps he couldn't communicate with Sarchiapone. He'd lost it due to his pursuit of reality. As the buffalo's fate of death draws closer, we hear his interior monologue. He says that he's been proud to have been a buffalo, and realizes that to love life is what really counts. A single tear even falls from his eye as he goes into a truck where he'll presumably meet where he'll presumably meet his fate. To provide a little more cultural context on the figure of Pulcinella, Pulcinella is a character that originated in the Commedia dell'arte of live Italian theater um, from several centuries ago. And what he's known for is having a sort of duality of roles. One is known as the upper Pulcinella, who's more aggressive and dominant. And this is foiled to the lower Pulcinella, who is dull, almost like a servant figure. And we see throughout the film, this version of Pulcinella is able to flow between the two, the upper and the lower, pretty seamlessly. At first, he appears to be assigned the, the task of looking after Sarchiapone, but then he also has the willpower to choose to free himself from his responsibility when he goes to the Tree of Death. So we see Pulcinella start more in the lower form, more as the servant figure, and eventually becoming that upper, more dominant version. The film also shifts between perspectives. We primarily follow Pulcinella, and as a human figure, he does most of the talking in the film, though occasionally we have quiet moments with Tommaso, both living and dead, as well as hearing Sarchiapone's interior thoughts and monologues. We even get occasional cuts to Jesuino, before his character is formally introduced throughout Sarchiapone's journey. Taking these four films together as a sort of journey through Marcello's career, we see several recurring themes and devices used. One of the most noticeable, and one that certainly continues in Martin Eden, is the use of archival footage. First, it makes the films almost feel like documentaries. Of course, several of these are non-fiction films, so they almost should feel like documentaries, but it helps add a sense of authority in the storytelling. It also adds a connection to the past when the footage is very clearly archival, whether it's in black and white or visibly lower resolution quality than the contemporary images it's paired with. It helps create a sense of timelessness and that where we are is a place where things have happened before and perhaps history could be repeating itself. 
Another recurring motif is the sense of transportation and movement. We, of course, have trains in Crossing the Line. We have trains and ships in the Mouth of the Wolf. We have all kinds of transport, whether spaceship, bus, or train, in the Silence of Pelashan. While Lost and Beautiful is mostly on foot, but Sarkiapone is taken to his fate, his death, through trucks. The sense of movement and transportation almost seems to serve two purposes. First, as a sense of placemaking, whether it's the train as the constant in the landscape is the change, such as in crossing the line, as well as the sense of movement as being a natural part of the whole, such as the Genoa of the Mouth of the Wolf, or the world as presented in the world as presented by Pelashan. But trains also help lead people to their fate or as essential steps on their journey, particularly thinking of the mouth of the wolf, where transportation is how Enzo comes home. And trucks and in Lost and Beautiful, trucks are what lead Sarkiapone to his death. Throughout the characters and the stories Marcello chooses to tell, it seems like he's focused largely on outcasts. Just like the castaway cave dwellers featured in The Mouth of the Wolf, the people and places he chooses to film are not the most glamorous, arguably exciting subject matter to film, but they're people who could largely go unnoticed or be invisible, whether it's the ex-convicts of The Mouth of the Wolf or the practically homeless as presented in Crossing the Line. By highlighting these different voices, Marcello shifts around perspectives, which only elevates and amplifies the power of his films. Rather than these micro stories, we're really given a macro perspective into a community, a collective thought, whether united or disjointed, but the whole as presented by Marcello is so much greater than the sum of its individual parts. These four films, Crossing the Line, The Mouth of the Wolf, The Silence of Pelashan, and Lost and Beautiful were Pietro Marcello's first four feature-length films. He had made some short documentaries bef before crossing the line, as well as in the middle of making each of these films, um, but these were his first four full-length ones. Lost and Beautiful is also his first fictional film, followed a couple years later by Martin Eden, which is now available for streaming. What I find especially compelling about Pietro Marcello as a filmmaker is that his cinema makes the contemporary eternal. In a way, it almost feels like the opposite of some of the films by Pasolini. Through Pasolini's films, such as The Trilogy of Life or The Gospel According to St. Matthew, these are period pieces set in the past that he pulls to the present through, through anachronistic choices or modern storytelling techniques while Marcello's films are set in the present, but almost pull back through archival footage, contextualizing the present through the past in a really powerful way. Especially looking at his career trajectory, this timelessness helps set the stage for his newest film, Martin Eden, a film arguably without a clear timeline, making it all the more timeless and meaningful. As always, thank you for listening. Please be sure to subscribe and follow us on social media.
Until next time, ciao amici.